experience the fullness of, of the Scripture and all that God had in, intended in this final age that we would benefit from this story and learn. There's a lesson here for us that is oh so relevant and oh so important. And I think we could sum it up by saying we must flee idolatry. We must flee idolatry and find true life and worship in God alone. Let's pray and then we'll read God's Word and trust Him to speak to us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this chapter, as sad as it is, that it's been preserved for us that we might take heed and we might find something better. And so I ask You, Lord, to come and visit us in power as we hear Your Word, that we would hear Your call and be stirred in our own hearts to flee idolatry and run to You Finding you true life and worship. Bless everything that I do to this end. Lord, help us to hear and to respond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read chapter 32. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. By the way, just to note, that is the divine name of God, Yahweh, the I Am, calling this golden calf back. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore 
by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service to the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. God's word from Exodus 32. This tragic story teaches us such an essential and important lesson that we must flee idolatry and find true life and worship in God alone. So let's dig in and look at how idolatry operates from this chapter. I want to cover four things that idolatry does. Uh, so first, idolatry deceives. Now, idolatry is the worship of idols, the worship of false gods. Anytime we worship something, um, anything, 
besides God, anytime we make that thing our chief uh, focus of dependency and delight, that thing is a God for us. And it is, if it's not the living God, it's an idol. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, they are actually worshiping a, a golden calf idol, but it's the same idea and truth we see throughout Scripture as it talks about idolatry. So, so they are deceived by idolatry. Moses is up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, he's there for a long time. That expression may mean exactly 40 days and 40 nights or just mean a long time. Uh, he's there on the mountain and he's actually left people in charge, but he's gone for a while and the people can't wait for him to come back. They can't wait uh, for God to answer them. They want to form their own God. So what happens is, is that time period is just too much for them. They are tempted. They're immature. They're, they're there without Moses. Moses has been their leader. And it's interesting to see that they come to Aaron with a fully developed plan. They don't come to Aaron. You don't see any dialogue like coming to Aaron like, Aaron, this is really hard. It's been 40 days and 40 nights and Moses is such a huge figure and helping us. Like, what's going on, Aaron? Help us. Help us to understand. I'm struggling with my faith, Aaron. I'm struggling believing that God is still with us because Moses is gone. Maybe something happened to him. You don't see any dialogue. You don't see any humble petition. They come, actually. The first two words are to Aaron are up or, or come, up, and make. So they come demanding that Aaron make them God. So something has gone on. They have, in the process of waiting the 40 days and 40 nights, they've, they've wondered on their own what's going on. They haven't sought the Lord. They've, they've, they've struggled, probably grumbled, they're probably gossiped. They're doing all the things that God tells us not to do, that we ought to instead pray and seek Him and seek the help and be together, come before Him together. There's all these ways we respond to adversity. They don't respond that way, apparently. And they come and they, they develop in their doubt, in their grumbling, in their gossip, in their pride, in their rebellion, a fully developed plan and a demand to Aaron. Up, make us gods who should go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So they speak derisively of Moses in that as well. They, they demand that Aaron do this. And, and there's a moment there where Aaron could have turned the tide. Moses had actually delegated to Aaron and her in his absence to lead the people. In chapter 24... He says that, wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So Aaron could have done the right thing at this point and turned the tide, but Aaron falls to the bane of any leader who leads God's people, from what I can tell, the fear of man. It is probably the chief obstacle to being a faithful and effective leader of God's people is to bow to the fear of man. He bows to the fear of men. And he compromises in that. Instead of resisting them, saying this should never be, he gives in. And he participates. He finds a way out for him to protect himself, perhaps, in all this. He says, bring me your gold earrings. And, and he takes all this gold and he probably melts it down and then he uses a carving tool and makes a golden calf in a terrible moment of failure. And he presents the golden calf to them. It's interesting to notice the words they use. Um, when he brings the golden calf to them, 
They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That word gods is the word that's used for, for the only God, the, the God who is one, the one in three, Elohim. And, and so they're mixing together a name Elohim with a misunderstanding and using it as gods because actually in Hebrew when it says Elohim, the verbs are always singular, so it's plural. Elohim means gods, but it's always a singular verb because God is three in one. In this case, it's not. It's plural and plural verb. And so they distort the, the truth about God in this. And Aaron participates in it. Aaron actually tells them that there's a feast. Aaron made a proclamation, verse 5. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So Aaron is, is trying to somehow work the deal where he can be on the people's side and maybe preserve some, some degree of truth in this. So yeah, he's Elohim. Yeah, you can say God's in your way, but, but he calls him the Lord. We're going to make a feast to the Lord. And he uses the unique name of God, Yahweh, the I Am. And so Aaron compromises. And the people deceive themselves into thinking that they're somehow doing something legitimate here. Because God had told them, right? The first two commandments. You shall have no other God before me. He spoke. They heard his voice from the mountain, you remember? Audibly. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. This is the voice from the mountain that, that, that blazed with fire and lightning. And yet here they are, making a graven image and worshiping a false god. They are deceived. It's just interesting to see how it worked, though. To see the, the fact that it, they didn't go full bore into the worst sort of idolatry. Later on, they're going to do that. As a nation, they'll, they'll go into Baal worship. Baal basically is a demonic entity. Later on, they're going to do this. But here, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a compromise. Like, you know, we're having a hard time because Moses isn't here. We need to be able to visualize God. So let's make a golden calf. That will be God. That will be the I Am. And, and Aaron plays a part in that. And just to note how idolatry works, it usually is subtle. It usually deceives. It usually doesn't come in bold and blatantly wrong. You know, if... If the people of Aaron had said, you know, Yahweh is evil. He didn't lead us. We're going to worship the goat demon Beelzebub. And we're going to make a goat demon to worship. The people would have been like, no! That's weird. That's wrong. That's not what's going on. If they had been blatantly wrong, it, it probably wouldn't have worked. But instead, it's a compromise. Well, this is just another way to visualize Yahweh. Just another way to visualize Elohim. And so they're deceived. And that's how idols work. They deceive us. They, it's not that bad. It's, it's true. It's just a different way of seeing the truth. Bold lies usually don't trip us up. It's compromised truth that does. Things that are partially true or mostly true. And we buy into it and we get deceived. And we get led astray. There's a, a promise in that, a false promise that goes on. This is how idolatry works. This is how life apart from the Lord, how we're led astray. I think of the story Pinocchio. Uh, I, like, I love the story. I actually was Pinocchio. I played Pinocchio in fourth grade. Um, we, didn't have, uh, we didn't have videos, so there's nothing to show for that, which is a good thing. But anyhow, uh, the story of Pinocchio, it's iconic. 
it, it represents a lot. I love the Disney version best. There's actually multiple versions. Uh, and so you know the story probably. It's about this wooden puppet who comes to life. He wants to be a real boy for his maker, Geppetto. And he has this, uh, these adventures. He has, a, uh, he has a nose that grows when he lies. And he has Jiminy Cricket with him, who's like his conscience, is always telling him, don't do that, do the right thing. So despite having a nose that reveals when he lies and a, and a conscience there for him, he gets into all sorts of trouble. And he compromises. And, and, and in the storyline, he ends up on Pleasure Island. I don't know if you remember that. Um, and Pleasure Island is like the ultimate place to go for a, a boy. You can do whatever you want, all the sort of boy things that you would get in trouble for elsewise. You can go on Pleasure Island, you can smoke cigars, you can vandalize things, you can play pool, and so forth and so on. And so he gets trapped with his friends, he goes to Pleasure Island, and little does he know that it's a trap, that all the boys who go there turn into donkeys eventually and are sent to the salt mines uh, forever. And it's, of course, it's a fantasy, but it's a picture. It's a picture of how sin and idolatry works. It's just like that. It promises something. It deceives us. It seems good. It seems legit. And then it comes in and brings destruction. Idolatry deceives. And idolatry, next, it dominates. It might seem, you know, somewhat harmless. Well, it's just a slight misunderstanding here, but, but that's not how it works. When we give ourselves to falsehood and false gods, that falsehood will end up dominating us. There's, there's no neutral ground in life on this. You either worship God and serve Him, or you worship a false God. That's how it works, in whatever form that comes. And so that's what we see here. It, it moves very quickly, doesn't it? From false gods to false living. Uh, it says they, so Aaron declares his feast. They rose up early the next day, Exodus 32, 5 and 6. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. So they're, now they're worshiping. They're using, they're actually following the procedures that they were called to in worshiping God. Um, but it's a false God. And then it says, and the people sat down to eat and drink. That was part of what you did for peace offering. You, remember we talked about that last week? You'd bring it and you offer it and then you'd eat it with your friends and celebrate God's goodness. They, people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's a euphemism. They rose up to some sort of orgy or whatever. We don't know exactly what went on. But it was wild. There was singing and dancing, but it was the, the fact that they were worshiping a false god and there was gross immorality and excess likely going on. And so idolatry has repercussions. It doesn't just like present as something harmless. It ends up dominating and taking over. And so this worship of the idol for them led them into this behavior that was way out of line. And that's the story of humanity. That's the story of Israel. Actually, if you follow the storyline further on in Scripture, um, God actually rescues them again and again, and they keep on going into idolatry to the point where they do terrible things. Hosea, God speaks to them because they are worshiping idols that are leading them to cult prostitution and, and, and uh, illicit sex as part of their worship. That's how bad it gets. I will, he says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And the people with understanding shall come to ruin. So God brings judgment later on. This is many years later. Jeremiah speaks to them because they're Worship of idolatry leads them to actual human sacrifice. 
says in chapter 19, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocents and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind, Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. God brings judgment for their idolatry and where it leads to human sacrifice, cult prostitution. This is true for all of humanity in one form or another, one degree or another. So Romans 1 speaks of this. Teaches us that, that what is known about God is plain to all of us. We have no excuse. And then verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Idols not only deceive, but they dominate. They take over. False worship leads to false living. And idols will brook no rival. They, they want all of your life. They will take over. And you will end up being ruled by that idol. Now, it's important in this story, by the way, to not think that God is somehow anti-dancing or anti-singing. Or that He's anti-feasting. Or even anti-sex. He's not. These things are all celebrated in the Bible. They're made by God to be employed in the proper context and design that God has for our good and His glory among us. But there are things in life that are meant to be blessings, that are, that are powerful things, and they are powerful for good or for evil. This is how things work. So the, some of the, the most significant blessings can be turned around into terrible evil. Music, marriage, sex, the arts, our bodies can be used for powerful good or powerful evil. And the difference is who we worship. The difference here in Exodus 32 and throughout the Bible teaches us it's who we worship. It makes all the difference. Now, um, this isn't the best metaphor, but I hope it's helpful in terms of this. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have dogs or have had dogs, all right? And if you have had a dog, hopefully you know about alpha behavior in dogs. We learned about it about 25 years ago. It made a world of difference. Um, and basically, alpha behavior in dogs is that every dog uh, is meant to live in a pack. It has a natural instinct to live in packs, and it has a natural instinct to assert itself as the, the chief dog in the pack. That's called alpha behavior. Uh, it's always there. And it's a good thing for dogs because some dog has to lead the pack. That's how dogs uh, do what they're supposed to do as, as pack animals. Uh, and, and so a dog is always either seeking to assert itself as the alpha or submitting to an alpha. And if you get that, um, it makes a big difference because you as the owner have to be the alpha. And they'll actually be very happy and obedient once they get it. But if you don't get it, they'll always be asserting alpha behavior. And a lot of the bad behavior in dogs is that. That's why dog trainers say there are no bad dogs, only bad 
owners. And, and by the way, uh, not to give a lesson on alpha behavior, but there's a lot of things that people uh, like about dogs and, and feed that actually is alpha behavior. Um, so things like um, insisting on being petted, that's an alpha behavior. Um, I like to pet my dog, or my daughter's dog, but, but I try not to let it tell me when to pet. Uh, growling if you touch its food, uh, always going out the door first, not letting anyone else sit in its favorite spot. Those are all alpha behaviors. And if you, if you reinforce those, the dog will think it's in charge. And then when you ask it to do something, it'll be like, who are you? I'm the alpha. Uh, so a little bit on alpha behavior. Why do I, why do I talk about this? Um, well, it relates to what we're talking about. In life, who we are and all these things in life that are meant to be blessings are, are kind of in line with this idea of alpha behavior. And, and they will line up in certain ways. They, they, there's no vacuum here. And so who we are and how all these things are designed, they're meant to be under the lordship of God himself. They're meant to be part of worship. And if we don't line up our lives around the Lord, there'll be another alpha. And it will rule the pack. And it will lead us into trouble. That's just how things are made. This is God's universe. This is how these things work. And so that's what's going on here in chapter 32. They line themselves up along worshiping this golden calf and therefore follow in with immorality and everything else that follows. And the story continues. It's so sad. Because idolatry not only deceives, not only dominates, but idolatry destroys. It cuts us off from the true and living God. And apart from Him, there is nothing, no true life. We are spiritually dead if cut off from Him. And to pursue idolatry is to invoke the just wrath of God, for God alone has made all things. He alone is good and glorious. He alone deserves our, our affection and our dependence, our faith and our hope and our love. He alone can supply what we need. And so to cut ourselves off from Him by pursuing idols is to be subject to His just response, His wrath, and to be destroyed, however that might come, whether it's dramatic like chapter 32 or, or some subtle way or we will live in spiritual death. And if we continue to live in that, we will spend eternity in that place. Idolatry destroys. And, and, and it's so sad here. Part of what's God's response to them and the severity of His response is that these people have received so much from Him. The level of revelation of God and His goodness and glory is so significant for them. For them to fail this way is so tragic. It's such a high-handed sin. They've watched God deliver the ten plagues, right? They saw it. They experienced it. His provision in the desert. His parting of the Red Sea. His audible speaking from the mountain. The Ten Commandments. The manna. All these things are from Him. And in light of all that, they blatantly rebel. And, and so God must respond dramatically and justly. We see that at other times in Scripture. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. In the early church, receiving powerful revelation of the truth and presence of God. And, and they lie blatantly and their lives are taken. And so here in this chapter, Moses comes down and God directs through Moses 
for the sons of Levi to go out and put the leaders to death. Those that are the ringleaders in this apostasy. They are put to death. 3,000 fall. Now there are, are probably a million people, whatever the number is. So it's not going through killing everybody. They kill the leaders is what they do. They put them to death. And then God brings a, a plague. And the people that have sinned in this are put to death. That's, there's an interaction with Moses. We're going to talk about that shortly. Where Moses said, you know, uh, please forgive them. If not, take my life. You know, blot me out of the book. And God says, you know, I appreciate that, but it doesn't work that way here. Uh, I will, I will, I will blot out, out of the book those that have sinned. And so he brings death and a plague. And it's tragic. It's the fruit of idolatry. It's destruction that follows. Now, we as modern Americans, in our ethics and how we see the world, uh, we can struggle with God's severity here. We live in a culture that, that ha holds the highest ideal to live and let live, to promote peace and safety for everybody, almost regardless of what they choose to do or pursue. The idea of being accountable to God and, and, and somehow outside of yourself and your own choices is, is abhorrent to our culture. And so the idea that somehow God holds you to a standard and then disciplines you or punishes you, brings his wrath, if you fall short of that, it, it seems just way over the top. And let me help us, perhaps, uh, by laying out some points I think will help us understand uh, how this is appropriate. And certainly, the first one being that what I already mentioned, that they've received so much already, and they turn their backs on God in that context. But a number of points that, that help us understand. First, God has a divine prerogative. He is God. We have these points to project. He is God. He, he has a divine prerogative. He's the one who gives life, and he can take life. We indeed are precious and made in his image, but we don't possess in and of ourselves a divine prerogative. We don't determine when we're born or when we die. God gets to choose that, and he chooses that according to his prerogative, always according to wisdom and goodness and justice and mercy. He alone is good and great. He gets to do this, whether we agree or not. And so Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked should I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, God made me, I came with nothing. I'll go with nothing. He gets to choose these things. So he has divine prerogative. Second, God is just. God alone is just. He's perfectly just. He never does anything capriciously, just flying off the handle. He's never impatient. He's not vindictive personally. Like, oh, I just can't stand it when they do that. He's just. He knows all things. He's never wrong. No one will be able to stand before him at, at, on the judgment day and say, unfair. It will be perfectly just. Everything he does. In Ezekiel, he interacts with his people over this. Chapter 33, verses 11, and then 18, 19, and 20. He says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And then later in that section, When the righteous turns from his unrighteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. 
Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just? O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. God is perfect in his justice. Third, God is ever kind and patient. He's a God who pours out kindness and countless blessings to us all the time. And usually, He waits a whole lifetime of kindness that we experience before He calls us to account. Romans 2 says, You suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He's ever kind. And then finally, Important point to understand this. God Himself has borne the wrath we deserve. In Jesus, God took on flesh, became a man, lived the righteous life that we were supposed to live, and then laid that life, that precious life down in our place, went to the cross, bore our sins on the cross, bore the holy justice of God, the wrath of God in our place. This is God the Son, in perfect union with the Father and the Holy Spirit, bearing God's wrath Himself. The fullness of that. So, 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus bore that wrath. God Himself bore that wrath for us. And if we run to Jesus, there's atonement made through Christ. That wrath is poured on Him and not on us. This is who God is. And so this helps us, I think, as we look at this and think, oh no, God, what are you doing? He's being God. He's being just. He's perfect in His justice. Finally, idolatry is defeated. So idolatry deceives, idolatry dominates, idolatry destroys, idolatry is defeated. So in the story, Moses comes down, sees what's going on, confronts Aaron. Aaron is at fault, actually. In this passage, it doesn't talk so much about uh, punishment to Aaron, but actually in Deuteronomy 32, you can read about that. Deuteronomy 9, actually. It talks about God wanted to destroy Aaron as well as the people for their sin. It's a terrible leadership failure on his part. And Moses comes and he burns and grinds up this idol. He, he makes it into powder. He puts it on the water. Makes the people drink the water with the powder in it as a, a way to, to bring home the lesson of this evil. But in this process, Moses interacts with God in some really important ways to note. God says to him, I have seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God sees their behavior and has a just response like this is awful and this is a stiff-necked people. Enough with them. I've been so gracious and again and again and now this, this worst form is here. I want to destroy them. And Moses responds to God in intercession. 
Moses responds and says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? You are the one who brought them out, O Lord. And if you do this, the Egyptians will, will say with evil intent, them out. And then he says, Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You promised these guys that their descendants would fill this land. Remember your promises. Now, as you hear that, you might think, well, this is kind of where God's the bad guy and Moses is the good guy. But don't make that mistake. Because certainly this is a just response on God's part, but it is a setup for Moses to be the leader God was making him to be. It was an invitation to Moses to be an intercessor for the people. And that's what Moses does. He, he intercedes before God and says, God, remember the fame of your name among the nations. Remember your promises to your people. Remember your people who you've, you've chosen to love and to redeem. And God relents. And then later on in this section in chapter 32, Moses goes to make atonement. And that's where he says, if you don't forgive them, blot me out of your book. It's really remarkable to see Moses' development and how he gets changed from a, a, probably a very self-centered man, very proud man, to a, a meek and humble man, and a man who loves the people, who is a picture of a shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. And at this point says, I know this is bad, Lord, but please forgive them, and if not, take my life. Lock me out of the book. This is God setting up Moses to be an intercessor, and Moses to be a type, a picture of the ultimate good shepherd, Jesus. And so idolatry is dealt with here in this story in Moses' leadership and Moses' intercession, and it points through this story to the fulfillment of this in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the good shepherd. He truly lays down his life for sheep. Moses could not lay his life down. Moses was not guiltless. He could not offer up himself in the place of another. guilt to deal with. And also he was a mere human. He could not offer up something worth more than one life. And yet Jesus comes as the perfect atoning sacrifice. Lays his life down. He is guiltless. He's perfect. He's spotless. And he's God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, his life is of infinite worth. And so he does lay his life down. He does bear sin. He does bear wrath. He does die in our place. He lays his life down. He too intercedes for us based on the desire to see God honored among the nations. He too intercedes based on God's promises to Abraham to have countless descendants. He lays down his life. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He comes and he lays his life down for us for, for we are much like Israel, aren't we? Our natural state is as idolaters. And before a holy God, we're lost in our sin. And we need something greater than Moses to come, someone greater than Moses to come and to rescue us. To lay his life down for us, to pay for our sins, and to rescue us from idolatry, to make us worshipers. And this is what Jesus does. 
And it isn't just in laying his life down, it's in dwelling in us and giving us new life and being with us. And so Romans 8 speaks of all that God has planned to transform us from idolaters to worshipers, to make us like Jesus, it says in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Brother or sister, if you put your faith in Jesus, it's because ultimately He chose before time to come and rescue you from your idolatry. And not only to rescue you by paying for your sins, but to conform you to the image of His Son. And says in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, brothers and sisters implied there. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Interesting to see the use of the verbs there. It's all past tense verbs, right? But these things are future. We're not yet fully transformed. We're not yet glorified. But it might as well be because Jesus is interceding for us. It is already done. We are forgiven. And we will be transformed into His image. There will be a day when there's no more temptation to idolatry. No more sin. Only perfect and pure enjoyment of God and worship of Him. If the band could come up as we prepare to transition conclude how should we live now what do we do now in light of all this well I think Romans 12 1 and 2 really gives us a good picture of this it says dear brothers and sisters I plead with you from the New Living Translation I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you let me say that again. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn how to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Guys, let's take a moment just to consider what might be an idol we hold in our hand. I don't know, but you perhaps know. Bring that to him and say, Lord, forgive me. Take this idol away. Remember you're forgiven in Jesus. Receive that forgiveness and say, Lord, set me apart. May I live in light of your sacrifice for me by loving you and living for you alone. Take a moment right now just to pray and prepare and then we'll transition to communion and song.